Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, y'all. Welcome back to Hashing It Out, episode 100. It's been a while. Uh, we've been gone for a while since the new year because we're busy, uh, but we're back. And for episode 100, big one zero zero. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, co-host today, John Mardlin. Say what's up, man. What's up, man? What's up, man? And today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Reach. We have Christopher or Chris and Jay for Reach to discuss um, a new way to build decentralized applications or applications in general. So we'll, we'll go and kind of dive into the weeds as to why this approach may be better than um, the standard way most people are building decentralized applications and um, how it gets used today and where it's going. So uh, Chris, Jay, why don't you start off by introducing yourselves. Chris, go ahead. Uh, my name is Chris Winter. Um, I'm a CEO of Reach. Uh, my I started out a long time ago, about 20 years ago as an engineer, and about 10 years ago, I abandoned it to be on the business side. So I spent the last 10 years um, in management and entrepreneurship, and I've uh, been running Reach now for about, I don't know, about a year and a half, a little bit, maybe a little bit more than that now. Um, but Jay? Uh, my name is Jay McCarthy. Um, I'm uh, the CTO of Reach, and I'm also a... Um, associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and I've been doing research in uh, programming languages and formal verification and cryptographic protocols for most of my career since getting my PhD at Brown back in the early 2000s. Dr. Jay McCarthy, I apologize for that one. <laughs> <laughs> you use the moniker when it's when it's appropriate. Uh, in that in that case, it's it's, it's an appropriate conversation. We've had uh, quite a few people on the show discussing static analysis, formal verification, security, even programming languages for that matter. Uh, what makes Reach different? So how kind of, how I like to explain this is go back to um, me three years ago. About three years ago, we were building a blockchain scaling solution. And uh, we built out a prototype, we raised some money. And what we, um, we got to the point of, okay, it's time to find developers. So we started hunting for developers, going to conferences, and start see, started seeing the same faces over and over again. We were trying to find it. It was difficult to find those developers. And we, we thought that was really weird because at that point, we drank the Kool-Aid. We, we knew blockchain was the future, but there are just no developers out there. So we um, started asking developers questions. We asked, why, why are you not developing in blockchain? You know, there's 20, 30 million of you out there. Uh, what's happening? And uh, through surveys, through conversations, there's three things that kept surfacing. Number one, blockchain development was just too difficult. Um, they were finding that dropping down to the level of the state machine and programming a state machine was just not something they were used to. So it was a completely different type of paradigm that they needed to learn to be able to build um, blockchain applications. Um, and not only is it, was it actually more difficult, but because it was a lower level, it, it took a lot longer. And developers like that instant gratification. They'd like to be able to just sit down, build something, and have something. 
But with blockchain, they were sitting down building something and nothing. Like it was just taking way too long to actually build anything. So they're running out of steam. Second thing that came up is just the cost of blockchain development. And the cost of blockchain development came in multiple different ways. Um, number one, um, if they wanted to build a team around them, a blockchain developer you know, makes $250 an hour. Um, it was very difficult to actually find developers to join them on a team. But say that if they, they found the team, they found the money to actually pay, pay the team or incentivize them in some other way. Uh, once they actually built their applications, now they have to get audits and that costs tens of thousands of dollars. And a lot of times they'll have to do that um, with multiple different auditing companies and every single time they change their code. So that was really costly. And the final thing is that they see these companies that build the team, get the audits, and are still losing hundreds of millions of dollars because of bad code. So they're looking at it and saying, you know what, this is this might be a little bit too early for us to come in. It's costing a lot of money to actually take that risk. Why would I change? And then the final thing is that um, blockchain in general is very tribal. Um, there's really no such thing as a blockchain developer. There's an Ethereum developer and an Algorand developer and a Cardano developer. and um, But there's no such thing as a blockchain developer. And that's because the skill set is just so different. It's very difficult for them to help each other. And not only is it so different that they don't uh, can't help each other, but it's actually very toxic. Um, my chain is the best chain. You're an idiot for picking your chain. And, and it's kind of, um, you know, regular developers look at that and say, you know, why would I deal with that? So those are the three real major pillars that we're finding why blockchain developers weren't coming into the space. So we knew that we had to actually fix that problem. And we could do a one of two ways. Uh, we could build a development tool um, that focuses on one of the, those aspects and iterate on how things are currently done. This is, uh, you know, uh, the teams at Truffle and Hard Hat or the, the team that built Hard Hats, Mithril X. This is the direction that they went and they did a lot of good work but they built their tool on the on the foundation of how blockchain is. And the truth of it is, is that blockchain development is so hard and bad that making something a little bit better isn't good enough. It isn't good enough to actually make a difference. So we, we gave ourselves the challenge of saying, okay, what would blockchain development look like if it was 100 times um, easier, 100 times better? And the answer came really with is what Reach came from. The idea of actually building a platform, a central hub, a central way to actually build blockchain applications that took care of everything, that changed the actual paradigm of what blockchain development is to actually make it 100 times better. So what Reach does exactly is it provides a programming language, which is the Reach language, um, that raises the level of abstraction. It allows for developers to code at the level of um, the participant rather than le level of um, programming a state machine. And because it's a much higher level, it's actually much um, much shorter and much more efficient to code. So developers can actually get down and actually build applications very quickly. Give you a real world use case, is that we're currently in the process of rewriting Uniswap in Reach. Uh, currently that is, uh, the Reach application is 250 lines of code, which is um, much, much more, uh, much shorter than what the Uniswap contracts and the middleware is. Now, to really prove the, the use case of, you know, reach is actually easier, we decided to put our newest developer on it. We said, um, we hired him a little over a month ago and said, hey, we want you to build Uniswap using reach. 
And before we hired him, he'd never even saw what block, knew what blockchain was before us. So we took a, a full stack developer and we tasked him with building Uniswap and he rebuilt Uniswap from scratch with Reach and 250 lines of code. And we know with minimal help from us. So we knew that we checked the box of making it easier to develop. The next thing that we wanted to you know, make sure that we fixed is the safety aspect, which I'm guessing we'll probably talk quite a bit on, uh, on this podcast about that, is that um, we wanted to make sure that the, the, the output is correct on comp um, compilation. And there's a thing out there called formal verification, which mathematically guarantees that the output is correct. But traditionally, you know, runtime verification, um, many companies out there that formally verify will spend time and generating an entire um, a model to actually prove that the actual code is, um, is correct. And they have to actually develop this all out by hand. It's very expensive. It is very time consuming. And it really requires the developer after it's done to maintain a spec and maintain their code at the same time. So um, it's super important, but traditional developers really don't know how to do that. But what Reach does is it automatically formally generates the formal proofs through the compilation process. So it allows for the developers to just drop in assertions into their code, and it mathematically proves that the code is correct just through compilation. So we know that uh, we made it so the developers can actually build safer applications. And the final thing that we did is we're unifying blockchain development. We've abstracted the actual blockchain um, blockchains themselves, the protocols themselves away, and make it so that a developer can actually write the application and launch on any any uh, chain without having to actually change their code as, uh, the code at all. You know, this is beneficial if a developer wants to launch their application on multiple chains. That's great, but that's not really the true value. The true value is that any developer can help any developer, no matter what chain that they're launched on. We already see it in our community that Algorand developers are helping Ethereum developers, which are helping uh, Cardano developers, and they don't know it. They're just answering questions. They're they're making you know helping building these uh, DApps, and they don't even ask where they're launching it because it doesn't matter. And uh, we we remove that that toxicity from the entire industry, and made it like you know unified it all under one banner, which is really exciting. So that's kind of like where. Why we're actually passionate about this is why we actually, you know, get up in the morning to, uh, to actually wor work our asses off. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's a, that's reach in a nutshell. Jay, got anything to add to that? Um, you know, your original question that you asked uh, was, you know, what makes reach different? And I think that Chris touched on a lot of those things. So we, when you write a reach program, you're programming, you're programming at a different level of abstraction from, you say, the traditional Solidity development. Like if we take uh, like a typical Solidity program, the way that you think about it is you say, I'm going to have some particular state on the blockchain, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to write down a bunch of different um, methods that modify that state. And when you're writing these methods, you have to think about when you would like to enable those transitions to be allowed or not. And this is what Chris meant when he said that uh, you program at the level of the state machine. Because essentially what you're doing is you're specifying you know, the, state of your, the state of your contract, and then each one of the methods is basically like an arrow uh, modifying that state. And a major problem that comes up is that you have to spend a lot of time trying to decide 
when to enable different transitions. But your Solidity program doesn't actually say anything about like what order these should happen in, what the people who actually use the program should be doing. And those things have to be recovered when you're doing um, verification of a smart contract because otherwise you'll just basically have to reason about every possible interleaving of all the methods and that is um, like infeasibly large right because it's an infinitely large space so you can't actually exhaustively explore all of them so you're limited by doing something like bounded model checking um, but when you write a reach program you actually include those details about what the endpoints do and by specifying what the endpoints do we inside of the reach compiler can derive what the state of your program has to be and derive what state transitions should be possible and then that's what we compile. So at like a technical level, that is like the key thing that's different. I suppose that there's one other thing that's quite different from uh, a program, like a programming language like Solidity and Reach, which is, is that um, in Reach, because we want to enable automatic verification, we need to remove features from the programming language that we can't dispatch without uh, human intervention. So what that means is that basically there are some kinds of programs that you can't write um, because we want to do automatic verification. So just as a little example of that, um, in Solidity, you could write by hand a while loop that had a really complicated termination condition um, to, that you know that you've thought about on paper or something like that, why it's going to terminate uh, and why it's not going to have infinite gas costs. But when you program in reach, we uh, limit the kinds of um, you know while loops that you can write to ones that we can guarantee will terminate. So that's just a tiny example. We're essentially a non-turn complete language. And kind of our hypothesis is that the vast majority of blockchain programs will fit inside of this. Um, restricted language because of course the alternative is, is that you would submit a transaction that could use arbitrarily large amounts of gas so by making the language be turning incomplete in this way we actually have predictable gas costs John got any questions I got a lot <laughs> yeah I just just like how's it going so you know <laughs> like um, that's a bit of a Bit of a challenge, I guess. Like, like, okay, you got you got an active community. It's Kumbaya between Algorand and Ethereum, and even Cardano uh, devs. Apparently, there are some. Um, and, but so, I mean, but but I think like it's. I don't know. Like solidity is like so bad it's the best like i it worse is worse is better it just keeps playing out for for lack of like you know what for better or worse worse is better um so how are you gonna overcome that like initial traction of solidity and and just like get the dev mind share that's a great question and um we we took a big risk um the, the big risk was um by building an, an overall platform takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of time without actually getting the uh, feedback from the users. So we took about a year and a half, a little over, little over a year uh, to actually build out the reach platform before we could even get any users. But as soon as we actually did and we opened the doors and, and launched our, our documentation, that was in last, last September. Since then, we've grown by 10 to 20% every single week. 
Um, last last week alone, we added 54 developers to our platform. And this is not you know 54 community members. This is actually developers that are building and compiling applications. And so I would how, say that how are you counting that then? Like like npm installs or something? Uh, so no. So uh, what it is is that if you because it's a compiler, um, you can you download the compiler from Docker, and we can track unique um, Docker IDs that download okay. from Docker. Sure. Um, and and the way that it's done is that um, it doesn't actually go through that process unless you go through and and compile the actual your application. So we know that this is not people that just download it. This is people that are using and actually being onboarded and building um, applications. So um, where most of those developers are coming are actually from those traditional developers. It's it, it's pretty surprising how easy it is to actually gain developers uh, from the real world when you make it accessible. Uh, we're not we're not pulling from the existing blockchain community because you know it's a few thousand people. We're pulling from tens of millions of developers in the world, and they're coming in. And I mean, we have a we're we're running a um, a bounty hack pro program right now, and one of our participants is 11 year old kid, has gone through the tutorial and is actually building um, a a what was it a wager based tic tac toe application that's fully decentralized. He's 11 years old. That's how we're actually uh, growing. Is that where we've we've made blockchain development easy. So you do formal verification on the language to make sure that uh, what I write in Reach does what it's supposed to do and nothing else, or at least based on the assertions that I put into the code. Um, how is that guarantee carried down into the compilation of a bunch of different languages, whether it be uh, Ethereum, Algorand, Cardano, like th those are all drastically different um, implementations of blockchain that have different foot guns. How how are you taking the guarantees and making sure that the compilation process um, carries those guarantees all the way down into them being put onto some blockchain and the middleware around them? Yeah. So um, the gold standard of doing something like this would be a verified compiler. So basically what a verified compiler is, is a theorem of the form for all input programs there exists an output program where the meaning of the input program is equal to the meaning of the output program and you could write your compiler like this and you would then know that the semantics of the input program was respected by the semantics of the output program um, such a gold standard um, pretty much the only compiler that exists that works this way is called comcert um, it's written in Coq, and it is, um, it's a C compiler that targets, um, the, basically what it does is its input is a subset of C, and its output, as I believe it targets ARM and x86 and um, some other microcontroller, I forgot what it is though. But anyways, that would be the gold standard. Uh, for my PhD dissertation, I wrote such a verified compiler for a language that's very similar to Reach, um, that where uh, my input language was, you know, my unique language was called WPPL, um, and the output language was OCaml, and so I used the semantics for OCaml to prove um, that it was a, you know, correct compiler. So anyway, so that's, that's sort of what the gold standard would be. We don't do that. We'd like to do that eventually, but, but we don't do that. Um, and uh, really nobody does that. Uh, because it's extremely difficult to do. Um, the sort of the next best option is to do what you might call um, output validation. 
So the idea of output validation is, is that um, rather than proving that all outputs are correct, you would prove only that um, the particular output that you were given was right. So in other words, um, rather than proving this for all exists, you would say that for this particular input to your program, we would prove that the output matches its semantics. Um, that would be uh, another good strategy to do to verify the result of a compiler, um, where what you could do is you could like um, try to produce that proof automatically. Something like that is also on the roadmap um, in the more medium term than the, uh, the gold standard verified compiler. Um, what we do is we instead prove that the um, that your program in the reach semantics satisfies its properties. And let me step back for a moment. Like, what is the verific what does verification mean in general? What verification means is that you have some property, um, which of course could be you know uh, an and of a whole bunch of different properties that you want to hold about your program. So you can think about that as a function p that takes a program and returns a proposition, and um, probably you're not proving the thing on the program, you're proving it on its meaning. So in other words, you would like to be able to prove that the meaning of your program has desirable qualities. And if you had a verified compiler, then when you proved this theorem on your program, you would also be proving it on the output program that ultimately ran. Um, and so essentially what we're doing is when we prove your program is right, your program is correct on the reach, like your reach program is correct. We're not proving anything about the reach compiler, about the output of the reach compiler. Um, uh, we're not we're not proving anything about what Solidity does. We're not proving anything about what the Teal compiler does or what Geth does or anything like that. Um, so in that sense, the reach compiler becomes part of your trusted computing base in the same way that if you weren't going to use reach, um, you know, Boost, LLVM, the Solidity compiler, Web3, all of those things are in your trusted computing base. So we essentially have the same trusted computing base as normal um, application development, but we're proving something about the reach program. Now, let me sort of compare this to something like, um, like Firefly, for instance. So Firefly is a tool that runtime verification uh, provides for helping you prove things about uh, Ethereum programs. Now, um, I am not an expert on exactly the techniques that um, Firefly is using, so it's possible that I will mischaracterize it, and I apologize to anyone at Runtime Verification for me doing so. But the general way that it works is that they have a, another, a different implementation of the EVM, and this other implementation of the EVM is embedded inside of the theorem-proving tool that they use, the, the K-Framework. And by having this other implementation of EVM, it uh, facilitates proving things directly about the bytecode. So in other words, whereas in reach you're proving something about your input program, and you then have to trust the things that are downstream, when you were, if you were to use Firefly, what you would be doing is you don't have to trust Solidity, the Solidity compiler, Instead, what you do is you take the EVM code that you come that comes out of Solidity, and then you prove something about that. Now, in the same way that I talked about before, how Reach is at a different level of abstraction from Solidity, 
EVM bytecode is at a further lower level of abstraction from Solidity. So this is one of the reasons why it's very challenging to prove things, um, prove useful properties about, um, about smart contracts if you're directly uh, proving them about the bytecode. And, you know, kind of an analogy for, you know, traditional, you know, computer science and programming, right? If you, if you want to prove something about an algorithm, you'd like to focus on things like, oh, well, you know, this value must always be in this set. But of course, when this actually gets implemented in, let's say, a C library, you're not reasoning any longer about values being inside of sets. You're, val you're reasoning about whether or not a particular algorithm for searching, let's say, a red-black tree will return true. And if you were to prove something about the underlying assembly, you're not even, you're not even reasoning anymore about searching red-black trees. Instead, you're just saying, suppose that I had this soup of memory, would I be able to prove something about the way that, that, the way that all the pointers in this heap are structured. And so every time you go down a level of abstraction, the demands on doing verification become much, much harder. And essentially the thing that's uh, wonderful about the Firefly tool is that it has a lot of machinery built in for reasoning about those extremely low-level programs of EVM bytecode directly. And it's kind of miraculous that it's possible for people to um, make any conclusions about what their program does. So anyway, so that was kind of a long explanation for, you know, what the formal verification landscape is like. And, um, you know, to go back to the beginning, uh, Reach is part of your trusted computing base for now, and we have multiple plans for how to uh, extend the guarantees about Reach programs to the actual compilation output, whether that is a for-all exist theorem that we can do once and for all, or in the short run, um, doing output validation. I understand that. I'm trying to rephrase it a little bit. Um, you're making sure the developer is capable of understanding that what he's writing does what he, what he thinks it does, at least within the language he's writing. Um, and then y'all as experts will spend time making sure that the rest of it can be also proven as best as it can be, depending on where it's being deployed. Um, and like you said, like the further you get to like, Bits on, a, bits on a machine, the more difficult it is to prove things and the more required expertise, which isn't something you typically want. Um, programmers building applications to spend all their time doing um, or thinking about for that matter. And you set yourself up uh, at least for uh, developers to get started quickly, making more, like, to understand more about what they're writing more easily. Uh, and a future of slowly making sure that what they're writing is more and more secure depending upon where it's, where it's being deployed. Uh, is that a reasonable, like high level summary of what you just said? Yeah, I think that's great. Um, and I think that, you know, it's useful to emphasize that, um, you know, because Reach does automatic verification, this means that there's no intervention on the part of the user whatsoever in directing the theorem prover about how it's going to do something. So we don't ask them to choose strategies. We don't ask them to um, ask them to make know. assertions. Uh, yes, the thing about the thing about the assertions is the assertions are telling it what to prove. It's not telling it how to prove it. Mm -hmm. Many theorem provers require you, even ones that are um, quasi-automated, like ACL2. Um, what they require you to do is when you what you would do is you would state a theorem, and then you would say prove this theorem using this strategy or maybe using this induction scheme. Um, and we don't require anything like that. And so instead, one of the things that we try to do is we try to make it so that 
the theorems that you want to prove about your program are always expressed in terms of the program itself, meaning that um, you can imagine that when you write a reach program, all you do is write the normal program that you would write, and you would add assertions just like you would add them if you were writing, uh, you know, like a normal runtime program well, uh, where you would, you know, if you had an assumption, you would put that assumption in your program. And this is sort of standard practice for, you know, good software engineers where they take their assumptions and they encode them. But of course, when that's compiled traditionally, those assertions become runtime um, checks. But what we do is we dispatch them, um, you know, at compile time. So by explaining things in terms of the variables in the program and what the program is doing, we lowered the barrier to entry to doing verification. You know, just as an example, you know, this 11-year-old uh, kid that uh, Chris mentioned earlier, him and I were talking uh, earlier today about how to um, prove one of the theorems in his program. Um, and, uh, you know, he basically had this uh, situation where um, he assumed that a variable was related to another variable, but actually they had independent origins. So he just had to make sure that he computed the first one as a function, sorry, the second one as a function of the first one. And then once you do this, they're now attached. And so the, the theorem prover can reason about them automatically. Um, so, you know, they're sort of um, simple program-like ideas that you can use to understand if your program's right in reach, as opposed to theorem-proving logic ideas that you have to bring in. So there's no additional expertise that's required, and that's kind of the, the key point. So you're basically saying, like, you just have to instrument your code with assertions, and proofs are generated from that. Yeah, so... Um, let's step back a moment, like, what is the point of formal verification? The point of formal verification is to know that your program is the program that you hoped it to be. Um, so you come up to a problem and you have in mind some pre-existing solution. This is kind of an important thing about programming, right? Like, programming is not a problem-solving discipline. Programming is about uh, encoding automated solutions to problems that you already discovered separate from the programming process. So when you walk up to uh, your keyboard, you already have a solution. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to write that solution down in a way that is automated. Now, uh, what you would like is to know that the program that you wrote actually is the thing that was in your brain before you started programming. And all verification can do is say if two things are equal. Um, sometimes it doesn't say if one's equal, it'll say if one is contained inside of another one. As an example of this, um, actually, let me so, so, let me stop for before the example. So what that means is is that the only way that a verifier can do anything useful is if it gets you to write your program twice. First, you write your program, and then second, you write the specification of what your program is supposed to do. Or you know, maybe not really first or second, but you write you write the, the developers specification. love doing this too. Ask John. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that one of the key sort of tools of good verification is to trick the user into writing their program twice without them realizing it. So as an example of this, when you write a Java program, you are writing two separate programs. You're writing the program once in the values, and you're writing the program again in the types. Now the types, when you write in the Java program, 
they don't in contain all of the information about what your program does. For instance, you'll write like, oh, f is a function that takes two integers and returns a third integer. That doesn't say that it's supposed to return five when you give it two and three. It just says that if you give it two integers, a third integer comes out. And so when the Java verification engine, which we just call the Java type system runs, what it does is it makes sure that the value program that you wrote is inside meaning that its behavior is permissible by the type Java program that you wrote. And as a programming language gets more, as a type system gets more precise, then it becomes more like a formal verification engine. And what a formal verification does is it allows you a way of writing down that specification. Okay, so now when we talk about reach, um, if you just write your reach program and there are no assertions in it at all, at a first glance, that means that you didn't write down a specification, so the reach compiler, the reach verification does nothing because you didn't tell it what else you were supposed to do. Now, existing uh, traditional programmers are already used to the idea that they should write down their assumptions about what values in the program, what values variables in the programs have as assertions. And they think about those as being things that happen at runtime. But if they write them down in reach, they now just wrote down a specification. Because while those things are useful in sort of normal programming to prevent you from going off the rails, um, they are a way of getting the specification out of the head of the programmer. I would now, argue, before you keep, keep going, like sure. what you're talking about when you say programming is more like traditional programming and not like what I think the colloquial term for programming is, which is more like scripting. Like... I come, well, maybe it's because I come from Fortran uh, background. And so you, you specify everything. Like implicit none is the first line of every single Fortran program. Um, and there's similar, there's similar constructs for other languages. And so you have to kind of define memory access, the bounds in which things can go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Modern day programming, especially ones modeled like JavaScript, tend to not have that concept when learning how to program. And, and, and I think what, What's important is that we get back to that concept of um, teaching people when writing things that deal with money, like a blockchain, they should be thinking about these things ahead of time. And a language like Reach that kind of really pushes you in the direction of doing this and gives you a lot of benefits for doing it is a generally good thing. Um, I think I agree with you, although I would say that uh, Reach is more dynamic-y than you might be thinking. So well, Playing around were... with it, it's very JavaScript-y. <laughs> exactly. So if, so if I were to listen to what you said, you, you might get the impression that, uh, oh, when you write a reach program, you have to like declare ahead of time that I'm going to use these 10 variables, and they have these types and all this sort of thing. But actually, uh, reach doesn't work that way. Um, it, um, it's more like it infers things about what your program does. Um, and kind of a way to think about this is, like, take JavaScript, for instance, or Python. Um, you don't need to, let's say, declare the types of variables because the language implementation is sound, meaning that right before it's going to do something dangerous, it will generate a check that makes sure that, am I about to add a number and a string? If, I'm, if I am going to do that, then throw an error. So essentially the way that reach works is, is that... Um, we do almost the same thing, except that rather than generating a runtime check that says, is this thing the right kind of value, 
we actually generate a new formal verification claim that that thing is the right value. And so what this means is that even if your program actually contains no assertions, Reach will generate assertions for you based on what the program does. And we do these for things that are normal programming things, like adding two values, uh, making sure that they're both numbers, or things like going outside of array axes um, will you know, double check that it's uh, uh, within bounds, and that is a static check, not a runtime check. But also, because it deals with money, we can do things that are uh, sort of unique to the domain of smart contracts. An example of this is like the linearity property that says that when uh, tokens go into a contract, they have to be used exactly once, meaning that they cannot be used twice, and they can't be used not at all, because if they were, if they were not used, that means that the program would end, and then the values would be locked away and you wouldn't be able to get access to them anymore. So that's a property that is a general one that should apply to all blockchain programs that you don't need to write down when you use reach because we can generate that automatically. As an analogy, you know, you wouldn't need to write down that you don't want to have null pointer exceptions when you write a C program. We just know that no C programs want to have null pointer exceptions. And so once we know that, we can generate this proof, this thing automatically. So the way, the way that I think about it is, is that if you don't know anything about formal verification, you don't know anything about like, quote, you know, serious software development, then you can write a reach program that does something quite useful and some properties will be generated automatically for you. And as you learn more, you can take those ideas and put them into practice using the reach compiler. Another thing that I think is appropriate to talk about right here is like the role of audits. Like what audits are really doing, they're I think, like, I think, I think before, before we move sure. on, because that's like, that's a whole huge. <laughs> sure. Let me You're just talk to two add, people who talks about yeah, audits all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, um, I, I think we should try to cap that a sure. little bit. Um, so I'm going to try to put some of my intuition of what you've said. Uh, it sounds to me like, like if you imagine that, you know, you can write a JavaScript program or you can write a TypeScript program. And uh, just like that, JavaScript will do stuff that's useful with zero type information provided intentionally or like implicitly. Uh, it, it sounds to me like the, the sort of free specification and verification comes from uh, the typing. So you're, as you say, you know, you're like writing the value program, which I guess is the JavaScript. And then when you add TypeScript, you are defining the types, which gives you all these like additional rules about what space, like what what states and and like state space and and values can and should be reachable. Um, and so, uh, from within that is, if you get your types right, you're getting a fair bit of safety, uh, additional safety guarantees from that. Is that like rough, like good enough? Intuition. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy because it, it helps you get that what type systems are doing is they're moving errors that would otherwise take place at runtime and moving them to compile time. And right. then Which is why is... people hate strongly typed languages because the compiler bullies them all day. But... <laughs> exactly. Well, and there's a good reason for that too. Yeah. Not, not, for, not for the bullying, but the hating, which is, is that um, 
you know, we know that automated algorithms for reasoning uh, are are limited. Like the Gödel's incompleteness proof is exactly about this. That anytime you have a proof system, there will be theorems that are true that you cannot prove. Um, and so because of that, that means that any analysis is going to be, any analysis that's sound is going to be incomplete. There are going to be good programs that it refuses to run. And the goal of program analysis is to make it so that the set of complete programs is as large as possible. You want to try to make the analysis more and more powerful so that the kinds of programs that people actually want to write are ones that we can automatically reason about. But there will always be a time when you know that a program is right and your compiler will say you're not allowed to run this program if that compiler is backed up by any analysis tool. Um, and that's what I was saying earlier about the way in which reach is limiting. Because you're programming with a safety net, uh, it's more like you're programming with a helicopter parent. Um, you know, there are <laughs> programs that it's just going to not let you do, even though, mom, I know that it'll be fine. Um, and in situations like that, you know, uh, you either need to decide whether or not you want to be purely on the straight and narrow, or whether you want to live dangerously and have your reach program interact with a program, you know, directly written in Solidity or Assembly or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that that was a good summary. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Uh, and I wanted to. I thought. I thought like. I also thought your example of um, you know to put it really into solidity. I think there's like a kind of a bug. Like I, I liked your example of basically like these these amounts that kind of they all need to add up at the same time, right? So like uh, there are there are like fairly common. There's like a fairly common bug where um, like you could get token inflation where you the total supply value in the token does not increase whatsoever, but um, somebody can send a token to them. So they have five tokens, they can send that token to themselves and they have 10 tokens all of a sudden um, because the, the, the token wasn't doing the accounting properly. Um, so it sounds like you're saying that that's just not gonna happen in a reach language or a reach implementation. Yeah, that would be an example of a property that would be automatically taken care of because we can, because we we know that everybody wants the linearity property, and so because mm -hmm. we know that, we automatically include that. Can, can I get out of it if I want to for some reason? Um, you couldn't get out of it exactly, but what you could do is, like, think of it like this: like, what is a token? A token is like. When, when you think about it in terms of like the data structures, there's a hash table that takes addresses to balances. So that means it's a ledger, right? So a ledger is this is this mapping. And um, if I hold those assets, then that means that what I want to do is I want to give you the ability to uh, remove them from the contract. So that means that I'm going to transfer away from me something based on what was in your cell in the hash table. And so if we, if you wanted to get around this um, and not enforce this linearity, then essentially what you would have to do is you'd have to say that your balance is 10, but you actually can only get access to five of them. So there would, you'd have to program it in such a way where you said, you're allowed to, I'm going to keep in my database that you have 10, but when it comes time to send them out, uh, then it may fail. So basically, it's sort of like 
me as like the reach expert, like I can imagine a way that you could probably do this. It's not going to actually make it so that you can get things that you shouldn't. What it's just going to do is it's going to force the reach compiler to allow you to make a runtime error rather than a compile time error. That's really the way to think about this. It doesn't prevent okay. you necessarily from doing something. It gives you the tool of detecting that that bad thing would happen at compile time and refusing to let you run. So if you meticulously plumbed it, you could make it so that at the very last moment you would see, aha, I can't do it, and then Reach is going to force you to not actually do the transfer. But you can delay up until that point. It's kind of like forcing weird behavior um, to have um, a larger domain expertise of what he's doing, he or she is doing. Yeah, I agree with that. That's pretty cool. Um, you built something in Reach. I, I made a, I made an application. Um, Reach says it does what I think it does. What am I deploying? Because it's not because like I think what's kind of lost in the conversation so far is that it's not just smart contracts. It's all of the things in, the, in between too, and so that's quite a bit of stuff depending upon the complexity of what I'm building. Also. Um, Hosting infrastructure for where these myriad of things live is is pretty broad, depending upon what I'm building. What, how does that work in Reach? Like, where do these things go? Yeah, so um, I'll talk about what we're doing now, and then I'll allude to what we're doing in the future. And Chris, maybe will comment more on what we're doing in the future. So right now, when you compile your Reach program, um, you don't just get a smart contract because uh, you know, Reach is not a smart contract programming language, it's a DAP programming language. Meaning that when you write your Reach program, you are saying what the individual endpoints do. And thus, like, take something like Uniswap. Uniswap involves liquidity providers and it involves traders. So the Reach program that, that is Uniswap-like, you know, an automated market maker, it doesn't say, here's the logic for making a pool and here are the allowable transitions. Instead, what it does is it says a liquidity provider can come along and they can decide to do a deposit. And after they decide to do a deposit, they can decide to do more deposits or decide to do a withdrawal. And separately, a trader can come in and when there is something in the pool, they can, uh, they can send in a trade and then they can make that trade. And so from these descriptions of what the individual participants do, we can derive what the smart contract is. But we also have the specification about what a trader is and what a liquidity provider is. So when you compile your reach program, you get a middleware layer, a backend that drives a particular liquidity provider using this contract. And you also get another program for a particular trader. Now these programs use the reach SDK, um, which abstracts away the details of the underlying networks. So it, you know, it basically allows you to have like a uniform way of programming using Algorand and Ethereum and you know future chains that will support. Um, and then you can take that middleware program and you can write a front end for it. So you could write a user interface, um, you know, using React or any other JavaScript library. Um, you could write a front end in another language like Python and Go because we have a way of uh, allowing you to write those front ends not in JavaScript. Or you could write an automated front end that was like a test suite basically that like automatically drove your application. And if you go, you know, use the doc, look at the documentation, um, basically the first big part of it um, is about writing an automated one. 
and then we say, oh, here's how you could write a command line um, you know, user interface, and then here's how you can make a web inter interface. But now, suppose that you did that, and like now you want to, quote, launch. Like, what do you do after that? Well, what you could do is you could take your web interface and, you know, put it in an S3 bucket, and then people can go to a website, and then now you've launched your application because your application embeds inside of it, interacting with the smart contract, deploying it, launching it, and people can go to your... So you can make it so that your application, your web application, drives the entire process. Similarly, if you wanted, you could take your... Um, you could you could take your your backend and embed it inside of an iOS app, um, and then you could build a front end inside of your iOS app uh, that contacts that and drive the creation and interaction with the smart contract directly from the app. No one's actually done this, by the way, with the iOS app yet, but in principle, it's possible to do that. So anyway, so that's what you get when you compile your reach program. And Reach does not mandate any particular deployment strategy. We provide you with those tools. I think the main thing that uh, that that Reach does in this regard right now, that's you know nice and automated, is that it provides a Dockerized infrastructure for you to run your automated test programs. So basically, when you write a Reach program, you know you compile it and get these artifacts, but you can also use our command line tool to. Uh, or our VS Code extension to run your reach program. And what that does is it will launch a custom DevNet for whatever change you want to test on, and it will run your test program against them so you can make sure that they work correctly. In the long run, one of the things that we would like to do is um, provide a, uh, you know, a Heroku-style service where we can help people launch their applications. But if we want to talk more about that, I think that uh, you know, Chris can comment on that. Business guy. Um, yeah, the, there is, there's a lot of ways that we're actually going to be monetizing this in, in the actual future, but right now our main focus is all about traction and getting this in the hands of many, many developers. I mean, it, I, it would be a long podcast all by itself of the ways that we're going to actually uh, monetize, but so, yeah. All right, great. That's a, that helps clear up um, a lot of the muddiness that I currently felt about kind of, cool, I wrote something, now what do I do? Because I, I have to deal with infrastructure a lot and how these things interact and so on and so forth. Um, for those who are interested, what you've mentioned it a few times, but explicitly, what like backends are you supporting and what's on the, on the, on the horizon for future backends that people can deploy to? So currently we support um, the EVM, so anything, uh, so Ethereum and then any chain that uh, has a EVM backend. Um, and then Algorands are, are both fully supported. Um, we are, uh, we've recently partnered with Conflux to help our, as a strategic um, partnership to help us actually grow into China because they put a lot of time and effort over there. So uh, we have recently partnered with them. Um, but in the, at the end of the day, our goal is to be able to be integrated with every major chain. This is not something that we're only picking like the top two or three. It's just that at this point, um, we believe that between Ethereum, Algorand, and Conflux, we'll be able to actually hit our goal of 16,000 developers in the next 18 months. So no need to actually add new new chains until we actually deepen the amount of features that Reach itself provides. And at that point, we'll start opening up to other chains again. John, you got anything? I mean, I didn't really... The audit thing is hanging there, 
Um, I, I think I'll just like, I'm curious what the, the comment is. Um, I don't think we should really get into like an open-ended conversation about it, but you know, give, give you an opportunity to speak. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, there are really great audits out there and there are poor audits out there and many audits have the form of, I am really smart. I looked at this program. Here are my comments about it. Sometimes an audit will say, I use these automated tools and I, in, and I reasoned about the output and here's my advice about what to do about them. And, uh, an audit like that, um, is something that is providing interpretation of automated tools that the um, authors of the program might not be able to do. And many of the automated tools that people currently use when they're analyzing and auditing smart contracts would not be necessary uh, for REACH programs because those checks are built in to REACH itself. Now, another aspect of auditing that's very valuable is when the auditor says, your program is supposed to be a program like this, and programs like that should really check this unique property of that particular thing. So, um, for example, um, you know, you might have the token linearity property, or uh, if we were to think about traditional software development, maybe like if I am, quote, auditing a sorting routine, I'll be like, well, you know, sorting routines really should produce permutations of their input. And I noticed that your program didn't have an assertion that the output was a permutation of the input. And so what an audit can do is they can provide additional assertions that the programmer should have included. Now, when you're programming in an environment that doesn't already have the ability to do verification of its own, one of the things that happens is, is that the auditor will say, I thought of this assertion and I reasoned about whether it was right. And maybe I reasoned about whether it was right using uh, automated tools or using the custom verification environment that, that I deploy in my audits. Now, if someone were to audit a reach program, what they would be able to do is they would be able to say, you really should have put an assertion here on line 17 or over here on line 20, you should have put an assertion there. And Basically, what this means is, is that the REACH compiler itself is an automated formal verification tool that um, auditors could use to be the facility to check the assertions that they come up with. So I think that there is a role for those kinds of high-quality audits where someone would come up with um, the appropriate assertions that would increase confidence in the correctness of a program. And I think that the same way that we currently look at smart contract developers and we say that it's good for them to do audits, doing an audit doesn't mean you're a bad smart contract developer. It just means that you are responsible and you're trying to go um, above and beyond what some people do. And so I think that it is totally appropriate with that mindset for high value reach programs to go through audits of the same form, except that those audits would be in some ways easier to do because the reach compiler itself would be the verification tool that would be used to check the program. And the nice thing is that those assertions would then live inside of the reach program in the future as the program would be modified so that the program wouldn't need to be continually audited over and over and over again. I want to add to that a little bit. Um, based on what I've experienced using it, and listening to you talk and like kind of the development process of writing a reach program, um, you're kind of 
pushing the user to do a lot of things that we as uh, security engineers or people who do audits or have been experienced with audits try and get developers to do before they even start programming. That's things like threat modeling, uh, user stories, uh, think like and and risk analysis and how these things interact, like how users access risk and whether or not that's a reasonable thing. Um, and because you're programmatically talking about users in the process of writing a reach program, they're kind of doing that. And so, like we like say, for instance, someone wrote a reach program, they're able to extract, in a lot of ways, um, what the programmer thinks about all of the possible individuals that could interact with this program how they interact, how they reach, how they access certain types of risk. And the compiler makes sure that what they've encoded does that. And then like as an auditor, I can take a look and be like, well, this is going to end up in a scenario that you may not have thought of. You, you put an assertion here to make sure that doesn't happen. I think that's what you just said, right? So like, like because you're thinking about in the process of coding, the individuals who are doing things and how they interact with each other, you're actually codifying the the communication and the interaction between individuals and then extrapolating a lot of uh, verification based on making sure that communication is proper or like it is done well by the code, you're getting a lot of the things auditors want developers to do or like a lot of things that like the, the concept of a secure development lifecycle has and, and, and a lot of the things that no one's actually doing. I agree. I'll just, and, I'll just echo that. I think like, yeah, having it, the 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 real thing I like is having in the code like not separating the specification from uh, the code because I mean like even just comments like I generally prefer not to have to go do like docs dot your protocol dot io I really just like want lots of comments in the code um, so I'm but then you know even better if it's um, it's code in the code that describes the code uh, and, and yeah. not separating that, that does something much. Yeah. <laughs> that also yeah. does something. So I, I, I very much agree. Um, and I feel like, you know, when other, in, in similar environments, people would say, oh, you know, you should do these things in your Java program. You should do these things in your C program. But there's very little payoff for doing that. So it's like telling people to take their vitamins or, you know, exercise or something. Like we all know it's a good idea, but, you know, it's very hard to do it. And one of the nice things is that because Reach also generates that backend layer, the reason that we generate the backend layer, or rather the only reason we can generate the backend layer, is because we have this information about the individual participants. So by actually doing something more for the user, we make it so that they produce those residual artifacts that are useful for the security verification. So like, I feel like when I think about Reach, there are all these little components that if you just focused on one of them, um, you know, it's you know, it's kind of interesting. But I think the thing that makes it quite special is the way that they all kind of meld together. Like we have this high-level programming language that has a new model of blockchain of DAP development. It's designed for something that total beginners can use, and it's and it's paired with this um, you know verification language and this verification engine that's uh, very full featured, and all of those things work together. Uh, to produce this, you know, harmonious synthesis. Awesome. Um, Chris, what's next? What's on the horizon? Well, how do people figure out, learn more, get involved, try it out? Um, um, like, give me an estimate on like how long it would take somebody. You already did this for your previous employee, but like 
shill yourself to our audience in a sense that like if you started using reach now you could deploy at the at application in x amount of weeks uh one week is where, where we where i kind of said it takes about two to eight hours to get through our tutorial depending on how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole of the, everything that we do um and a lot of people don't like to sit and just do that all in one day so i like to say you know spread that over a week and by the end of the week our tutorial actually launches a a formally verified um, wager-based um, smart contract DAP that can launch on multiple different chains. And, and it's very easy. You can get to get to our documentation at docs.reach.sh. Um, as far as what is next, um, Jay is and, and team is actually working very hard on rolling out more and more features so that we can build out and compile more different types of applications. But like I said earlier, our goal and our actually it's, it's showing pretty realistic at this point that in the next 18 months, we'll have 16,000 developers that actually go through through the actual reach uh, tutorial and start building applications. All right, John, you got anything else? Nope. All right, thanks for coming on the show and uh, best of luck guys. I mean, I'll be looking further and further into it because I like the concept of um, lowering the barrier of entry for secure development and this seems to be it. Excellent. Thank you very Thank much you. for having us. Thank you both.